I'm Mary Claire Erdenast. Welcome to Play for Keeps podcast. We are recording new plays as podcasts in Ashland, Oregon, as a part of the Ashland New Plays Festival. We've created this podcast series to let you in on a conversation between creators at the front lines of new works. Today we're talking with E.M. Lewis, a longtime host playwright and the 2008 winner of Ashland New Plays Festival for her play, Song of Extinction, and Jackie Apodaca, the Associate Artistic Director at Ashland New Plays Festival, Professional Director, and Head of Performance Faculty at Southern Oregon University. Hello, Ellen. Hi, Jackie. How are you? I'm good. I'm really excited to talk to you. Me too, you. Fantastic. I, I feel like um, I know a lot about you on one hand, but then I almost know nothing about you on the other <laughs> hand, like, right? I, I know your bio and I've seen you at so many events, but I don't really know what makes you tick, you know? <laughs> well, I think this is a good opportunity for us to get to know each other because it does seem like every time that we see each other, it is all about the work and we're focused on uh, Ashland New Plays Festival stuff and making things happen and bustling around and we don't get that opportunity to sit down together and get to know each other so <laughs> absolutely absolutely and it's about the work you say but it's about other people's work too it's not about your work usually when I've been since I've been involved with AMPF and it isn't about mine um, I'm acting sometimes or directing but it's really about these other playwrights and so all of our attention is on other <laughs> artists well wow. so tell me a little bit about yourself how long oh. have you been in Ashland oh no <laughs> what is your Santa Barbara connection because I saw that on your bio <laughs> true. Um, I have been in Ashland for eight years and I came here because of the job opportunity at Southern Oregon University um, I had been teaching at UC Santa Barbara for about 10 years as an adjunct in the film program actually and uh, it's difficult to be an adjunct. I don't know if you've adjuncted. I think you maybe have. You have yes, a little college bit. has adjuncted. And that is a, a difficult uh, life and a different difficult setup. You never know what's going to happen. And so I had been acting and directing and also adjuncting to sort of, you know, pay the bills and to um, keep my health insurance because I had a child who I needed to make sure I had consistent health insurance for. And so when the job at SOU came up, I thought, Oh, all the supply for fun, you know. <laughs> so here I am, um, years later, in Ashland, which in is Ashland. really a tremendous place for a theater maker. It is, and for an artist in general, um, people will talk about how Ashland is so special and so gorgeous, and it really is. Um, but I also came from Santa Barbara, which is another gorgeous place, and so I've been really lucky to live in lovely, lovely communities. Are you in Portland? I am actually about an hour south of Portland, although Portland has become my theater community since I moved back home. Um, I'm on my family's farm. We have about 15 acres uh, out here. It was my great-grandparents' farm, and it's the place where I grew up. And after about, oh gosh, 12 or 13 years in Los Angeles, which is where I went to grad school and then stayed and became a playwright, oddly enough. <laughs> and then three years in New Jersey, um, I decided to move back to Oregon. 
and it that was about four years ago and it has been fantastic um a little difficult at first, kind of moving back into the family unit. My brother uh, is a winemaker here on the farm, so he comes and goes. My parents are both here uh, in our big old farmhouse. Uh, but with the amount of traveling that I've been doing with my plays, but also teaching gigs, it's very hard to maintain a residence, not to mention a cat, <laughs> to with a, out someone to take care of uh, the place and feed the cat and you're coming and you're going and it's for a lot of reasons, but also the ease of being able to be a full-time artist. Uh, it's been a great move. I think that's a really interesting thing that you touched on, just the idea that I, I think as a young artist, as an actor, certainly you have an idea in your mind. I had an idea in my mind about what success would be. <laughs> You know, and that I was going to just, I just wanted a little career where I would just make enough just to have like a normal house and I could have a kid or two and I would just have my health insurance, my, my base level. And I thought that seems very reasonable. I don't want to be a famous person. I don't want to make a million dollars. I just want this normal life and I'm willing to do other work. You know, I don't, don't need to make all my money as an actor. I'll do lots of things. And just put making that happen in today's economy is really challenging. It is. And it's also unique to each and every artist how they figure out how to make that happen. Because there's not one path to being able to do that. And every city brings its own challenges. Because having lived in Los Angeles, which is expensive and requires a car and then car insurance and you're, you're, that's a, every, everything is expensive. And then I was in, when I was in New Jersey, I was in Princeton, which is also not a cheap community to live in. And I was living cheaply. I didn't have a car when I was there. You know, I decreased my expenses, but still the artist's economy is uneven at the best of times. And uh, people want rent on a regular basis. <laughs> so. <Yeah>, apparently. <laughs> it's the case. Um, I think that is, you know, coming to Ashland, that was, as I said, one of the big reasons that we came here. What is this, you know, tenure track job world? And so um, it is a really different way of living, for sure, to be in a more... Uh, I have steady job kind of situation. So find a little bit of stability with, so, so that uh, yeah. you can feel bold as an artist. <laughs> That's the way I think of it is to like have a little safe anchor point so that I can be bold in my venturing right. out. Right. Well, tell me what you've been doing over the last year or so. It has been a very busy year. <laughs> Seems I like it. Really, have had a lot of exciting things happening. Um, so it was about a year ago that the world premiere of Magellanica happened, and that looms large in my life and memory because it is my five and a half hour Antarctic epic play, uh, and uh, the lovely people at Artists Repertory Theater uh, decided to produce the world premiere of it, and they did such a fabulous job, and it was right there in Portland, so I could be a part of every minute of it. All six weeks of rehearsal, uh, I could be at performances, I could have a part in the design process, and it was everything that I wanted it to be. 
it's very scary to write something of that duration uh, <laughs> because you have to have a little schutzpa <laughs> to write something five and a half hours long and, uh, and expect it to find a home and then expect it to find an audience. Uh, and I didn't have any guarantee of either because it wasn't a commissioned piece or anything. It was a story that I had in my heart that I wanted to write that was about big ecological themes like Song of Extinction, which is the uh, play that connected me originally with the Ashland New Plays Festival. Um, but it's about things that are important to me. Um, and scientific questions that are in front of us and find human answers in pulling together. And at a time of massive divided, divisiveness in both our country and our world, that felt like something I wanted to lean into. So that was big. <laughs> That's huge. It's five and a half hours, you said. Five and a half hours for real. Hence. How does that, how, so how does that work for the audience? Um, the audience? I was at Denver Center when they did um, uh, Tantalus. You know, we had the two day crazy thing. Like I had been, I was there during the rehearsal process. I did not see it. I was gone by then, you know, but I went to grad school there. So I was there during the lead up and um, all of the factors besides just how to produce the play with a long play, five and a half hours is not as insane, but it still must require a different viewing experience. Absolutely. The logistics have to be built into the art of it and the craft of it. And I was cognizant of that as I was writing the play. Uh, it is actually in five parts, um, not acts, but parts. And there is an intermission between each part. And so really that makes it very bite-sized. So the, the first part is about 50 minutes long. And then you have an intermission and everybody gets up and stretches their legs and gets a cup of coffee and comes back in. And then you have part two, which is about the same, about 50 minutes long. Go out after that, uh, have a bit of a break, come in for part three, which is about 45 minutes long. So a little bit shorter, 40, 45. Uh, and then you have a dinner break. And... The folks at Artists Rep, led by Damaso Rodriguez, who's their artistic director and the director of the play, so smart. He said, if we let them out of the theater, this is going to be chaos. <laughs> this is just going to be chaos. Because then you have 225 people who are searching the uh, around Portland, trying to get something to eat in a timely fashion and then get back to the theater. And how does that happen? And how much time do you then need to allow, which is a lot. And so they said, we're going to feed them here. We are not a theater that usually does this, but we are going to, uh, they partnered with a company uh, that does catering and you could pre-order sandwiches, salads, soups in whatever combination. And they were just ready for you in little boxes as you came out of the theater and you picked up your box and you sat down. And more than that, they had pushed the tables together in the lobby. So just like a scientific base in Antarctica, people sat together and talked together and a sense of community was built over the duration of the play that reflected what was happening in the play. And that was beautiful to me. That was just so exciting. <laughs> 
That's amazing. Yeah, I was going to say that the idea that um, they could talk about, especially since you're writing about something that people might have really strong feelings and opinions about, that they would be uh, encouraged and forced to sit together and yes. confer. It really, it really did. And uh, we also, they also allowed people to uh, bring in their own food if they want. They're like, bring a picnic basket. There was a lady who literally had a giant picnic basket shoved under her seat and uh, was, you know, they're sharing cookies with people. And uh, the play was about eight scientists who were stuck together at the South Pole Station for the eight and a half months of dark winter solving the question of the hole in the ozone layer and it was about whether or not we can pull together or not and uh, I think the whole experience was very positive about pulling together so um, so Magellanica I'm currently have the rolling world premiere through the National New Play Network of Apple Season, and I brought a uh, show and tell. I don't know if you can see that. That's the post, little postcard for Apple Season. Uh, it started at New Jersey Rep. It's now playing at Riverside Theater in Iowa City, and then this summer it goes to Moving Arts in Los Angeles. And so that's exciting, a small little three-character Oregon play um, about trauma and history and how to move forward and um, I've been doing the gun show uh, which is a very personal play about guns and gun control that I'm excited to be bringing in June to Ashland to my friends in Ashland um, and that has just been published by Samuel French and so that was an exciting thing that happened <laughs> just very recently. Um, I was just doing the play in Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, a couple months ago, and then in Pittsburgh. Um, I was there for a month doing it. It's a one-man, two-person show. So it has a male actor, but that actor works with me in the audience. So it's a little bit different of a play in its presentation yeah. style. Yeah, I, I'm really deeply disappointed that I will be gone in June because I will not get to see it. Um, in reading it, I really would really love to see it come to life, you know, and to be performed. So I hope that people who are hearing this who are in the area um, of Southern <laughs> Oregon will be able to see it because it seems like a very special play and a special production. And I'm sure you're not going to be available to do every production of it that ever is done. So the opportunity to see it with you actually there I think is really special. I'm glad to be. Ashland is a very special place to me. I've developed a real relationship with the people there uh, from 2008 I think it was when Song of Extinction was one of the four winners. Um, that was my first introduction to um, theater in Ashland really because I hadn't it's about five and a half hours away from where I live up here in Northern Oregon. So uh, we hadn't really gotten there as a family to see shows at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. But as host playwright, I've been able now to fold it in and, and be part of, part of that community in some wonderful ways. I, it's very special to me, the folks there. <laughs> Fantastic. So 2008, <laughs> so it's 11 years that you've been working with AMPF. Uh, it 
is. That's kind of shocking. Yeah. <laughs> That's like a full, you know, beefy residency right there. <laughs> <laughs> it's been lovely. And although I've stepped away as host playwright, just felt like the time and busyness uh, required, uh, I never want to be disconnected from it entirely. So how did you first become part of ANPF? Was, did you know Kyle ahead of time? Is that, did he pull you into the fold or? Sort of. Um, I did know Kyle ahead of time and I will take credit for Kyle being the artistic director of ANPF because when they were searching, um, John Rose and I had coffee and we had had coffee many times about how to get SOU theater students involved with New Place Festival. And, um, we had coffee about that and he said, yeah, we're looking for an artistic director. I don't know. You know, we're not sure who it's going to be. And I said, oh, I don't know who it might should be. <laughs> and so I knew uh, Kyle and I worked together at SOU uh, previously. And so I knew that he was actually looking to get into artistic direction. And he's a fantastic person to work with and collaborate with. So um, I said, you guys should talk to Kyle. And so um, he... I was not surprised that he was hired and um, excited for him in that. And then he and I have a really uh, strange uh, sort of relationship in that once we started to collaborate and be colleagues, we just didn't stop. We only actually worked together at SAU nine months, mm -hmm. but he remains one of my closest um, person that I go to for advice professionally, person that I text if I'm frustrated about something, oh no, what should I do? You know, he, he and I are, and, and same with him, we're really still um, connected in a deep way. So we got lucky at, we were both hired at SOU at the same time. He moved on very, very quickly from that institution, but we, uh, our relationship and our collaboration has continued. So as he started working at, uh, with AMPF, it, it was not a surprise to me that very quickly he was like, okay, what, what are you going to do? Um, yes, <laughs> come help, be part of this. Totally. He's fantastic. Which is, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. And I actually get to do, um, I do most of the casting and a lot of the um, figuring out who, who's going to direct. And, and so putting the artistic personnel for the fall festival and our other shows together. And that's one of my favorite parts. I have been a producing director in the past um, mm. at another, uh, at a Shakespeare festival in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And um, some of that work is glorious and some of it is such a pain. <laughs> and so I was really <laughs> happy to be able to say, I want to work on, with actors and directors and I don't want to have to figure out the budget. So there you go. You can do the parts that speak to you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And so that's been fantastic. He is wonderful, smart, empathetic person to work with. I've been so happy uh, to see him step into the shoes of artistic director at ANPF and really bring the organization to a new level in so many ways. I, it's, it's an exciting time. It is. It really is. It's really um, shifted a lot in the last few years, I think. But at the same time, the thing that is the best about Ashland New Plays Festival, from my perspective, is the sort of holistic the holistic and uh, full connection between the artists and the community and the uh, readers and audience, which I have not seen uh, in all the theaters I've worked for where the audience has been very involved and people have said they loved it and oh, where the community is collaborating, but it is not like this. This is a very special version of that where the, um, because I think of the reader process, how many of those people in the audience 
personally chose those plays, how many of them argued about which plays were better and will say, oh, the one I picked as my favorite didn't get picked, so I'm mad about this one. And right. they go and see it and say, oh, I was wrong. That one was great. You know? <laughs> that kind of um, engagement, I think, is uh, really special and unusual. I love that about Ashland, the passion about the plays, uh, but also about the people who are creating them and the ability to argue in the most positive ways about the ideas that are being brought forth in the play, as well as the craft that goes into telling the story. Uh, people in Ashland are very ready to speak to all of those levels. It's a smart audience. So. Yeah, absolutely. In and engaged and sort of passionate in a way. You know, many places you have a talk back mm -hmm. after something. And 30 people out of 300 will stay. And at ANPF, I feel like everyone stays. It's <laughs> 300 out of 300. <laughs> I know. The first couple times I did it, I, especially the first couple times that I moderated um, the talkbacks, it's a little intense. It's a little intimidating um, because they are there and ready to have a deep conversation. And sometimes the artists are a little nervous uh, about what part of that there is people are going to delve into uh, but the audience is smart and also very well versed into how plays are made from their experience at Oregon Shakespeare Festival with the new work that they're presenting there as well as years and years of Ashland New Plays Festival. So, uh, well, what else do you have? So you, uh, what are you teaching at SOU? Is it acting, directing, everything? I am the head of the <laughs> acting area. I am an acting teacher, primarily. I've taught many things, and I'm sure we'll continue to do so. But um, I, I am an actor by training and by trade. You know, that's sort of my biggest, uh, the biggest piece of my you know, diagram. <laughs> and... Um, I, in graduate school, actually, for uh, at, in, at Denver, at the Denver Center, uh, my graduate training to, uh, to get my MFA in acting is when I started sort of self-teaching myself how to teach acting, mm. um, because I, I had a teacher who was quite smart, but we had, she was really a brilliant teacher, but we had her so many times and for so many hours, <laughs> and she would work with each group so intensely for so long that I would start to drift away in my mind. And the way that I could stay in the room was to anticipate what she would say next. Mm. So I started to watch the scenes and try to guess when is she going to interrupt? Watch the scenes and guess what she's going to say. And so I did this. I didn't realize I was doing it. At the uh -huh. time, but I did this funny master class with her for a couple of years <laughs> as an actor, acting teacher, as well as, a, as an actor. And so that uh, sort of launched that interest in me. And um yeah, so I've been teaching acting off and on um, ever since then, um, from the time I was 26, you know, and getting out of grad school. Um, I love teaching acting, but it is also exhausting and sure. uh, in a weird way that other kinds of creativity and art and teaching hasn't been for me. And so it's a, um, I'm currently on my, one of my, uh, Three, I, I'm taking a year sabbatical, but I'm taking it in little pieces over three oh. years. And I'm currently on one of my little sabbaticals. Nice. <laughs> so, so that's good. Do you have a specific project that you're working on during your sabbatical? Or is it uh, time away? Or what's, uh, what's I have this time specific being projects, for you? But, um, 
Yeah, sabbatical, I think, often is misunderstood, uh, even by my family and even by me, <laughs> because I'll say, no, no, it's my sabbatical. I don't want to do anything. <laughs> but a sabbatical is meant for you to you know, focus. If you're a scientist, that's when you spend all your time in the lab doing experiments, you know, so you don't have to teach your classes. And so um, in, in this sabbatical, since it's spread over three years, I don't have the ability to commit to one larger project. And so I've diced it up in a way where... Last spring, my book was published. Congratulations. And, so, <laughs> um, and it was a really, a little bit awkward timing, actually, because it was published right as I began my sabbatical. And it really should have been published at the end. <laughs> so I could have had more time off to work on it. But I had been working, you know, nonstop to get it to the publisher on time. And then it came out and we did, I did some book events and stuff. So um, that is called uh, Answers from the Working Actor. And it is a book that was the culmination of many hundreds of columns that I wrote when I was a columnist for Backstage. Oh, fabulous. I worked with Rob Kent at Backstage uh, as a columnist there for, um, and he left a little while into my duration and then I worked with Jamie Young. Um, so several editors, but I worked at Backstage as their um, Dear Abby for actors nice. um, for 10 years. And so I would answer questions every week um, mm-hmm. by actors who want to who want to ask, you know, the most common questions are, how do I get into SAG? How do I get an agent, et cetera? Sure. But all the way to very specific regional bizarre questions that I had to go mm-hmm. and investigate as a journalist. And I discovered, oh, I see when you're an actor people won't answer your calls. But when you're a journalist, everyone will talk to you. (laughs) So I learned so much about the industry of acting through that time, um, which I never would have been confronted with or had an opportunity to find out, at least in the the way that I was able to ask really honest questions. And they knew that I I wasn't wanting something from them besides the answer, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. So those columns were published in Backstage over the years. um, And then... When I moved up to SOU and started uh, this tenure track job, I left that position. And I felt like in my computer, I had all these columns that I had written and they had been in the paper, but it's a weekly paper. You know, you get the paper, you recycle the paper. And I felt like this was years of work. Absolutely. (laughs) And so I decided that I wanted to make sure that they lived in some form in the future, at least the ones that I felt like, hey, I actually had done investigative reporting here. This is valuable information. For sure. Uh, so myself and um, I actually asked uh, Michael Kostroff, who had written, co-written the column with me when I moved up here and when I was on maternity leave. Uh, so he had many columns. And uh, we together put together this book, which is just a Q&A of the professional actor world. Fabulous. So, yeah, that was an intensive um, culmination sort of of a big phase of my time investigating that industry. So that came out in uh, last March or April, I guess March. And um, this spring I'm working on, there's things, pedagogical pathways that I've sort of forged in my time as a professor and as an acting teacher that I want to experiment with and see if I can codify them in some way to share them. Because right now I feel like they come, I have done certain exercises again and again that I have invented and I think they work because in the moment I'm making decisions, but could they work if I write them down? Could right. something else make them work or, or not? Yeah. So oh, really, that sounds intriguing. Yeah. And, and not to say, oh, I'm so great that no one else could make them work, but is there something that 
I'm not fully even understanding about what I'm doing that I'm doing, you know, spontaneously, or am I actually able to codify it and get a reliable result, you know, scientifically? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so perhaps this might become a book or manual for acting teachers. Yes, absolutely. And, and sort of a, maybe a technique to work on certain things or an overall, maybe an overall acting technique. I think doesn't, I'm a director. I'm chair of the theater program or co-chair right now. I have been a producing director. I have been a contributing editor backstage. Like I've done many things that are very um, like, no, you're in charge of things. But I have a um, an actor's soul a little bit where I feel like, oh, do I know what I'm doing? <laughs> so I'm a little... You know, loath to say, oh no, it's my, it's the Jackie acting technique. But, but I am interested to see, could it be? You know, what, what would that be? Absolutely. Well, that leads me to, what kind of plays do you like? What kind of work do you gravitate towards? Speaks to you as both an actor and wearing the other hats that you have as a teacher. Um, because sometimes when you're working with students, all of a sudden different kinds of plays open them up in different ways. But what what do you love? This is a difficult question. And I think that I'm at a point in my life where I don't even know how to answer it anymore. Like I think that I knew what it was, what they were, what, what I was passionate about. And I feel like over the last, I think coinciding with this position that I have now where I actually have the um, self agency to decide which playwrights I'm going to teach, which plays I'm going to direct. We sit in season planning and all my uh, faculty colleagues hate me because I always say, I like all the plays. (laughs) You all pick first. I'll do whatever's left. Like I I don't, I like a lot of things and I don't think I, I don't know. I don't know that I, I have a specific area that at this moment is, um, I need to explore. I feel like I need to explore everything and anything. Um, and now as I say that though, I realize that um, I'm lying. Um, Chekhov, Libby <laughs> Apple says that Chekhov is her boyfriend, but he is my oh. boyfriend. I'm very angry at Libby. So, uh, <laughs> I'll check off all the time, please. Okay. What is it about Chekhov? This is interesting. What is it about Chekhov that, that speaks to your soul? <laughs> so the, Okay. Um, have you ever watched The Real Housewives of Orange County or Beverly Hills or? Not actually. All right. <laughs> to me, Chekhov is um, a much more beautiful and poetic, although maybe not even. Maybe The Real Housewives of Orange County is poetic and beautiful. Um, version of looking at people who are struggling to find meaning in life when they are not immediately under threat. Like, I think that um, Chekhov's characters are comfortable. They have servants. They're living on estates. Yes, yes, the Russian Revolution. Things are going to change. The revolution is coming. Bad things are coming for them. But, Trees are going to go. Yes, yeah, things are coming. And they are feeling the that impending. But they currently, in the moment that the lines are spoken, are fine. Mm-hmm. That they are freaking out about what about my life? The phrase that um, I think I use with my students and that my uh, teacher, Jennifer Rincon, used in Denver about, uh, as Chekhov is, what about me? They're constantly saying, what about me? What about me? Mm-hmm. You know, what about my needs? What about my love? What about my passion? Why is no one letting me pursue it? Oh. Why, why am I trapped here? And there's something so uh, 
beautiful and human and universal about that, that I feel that it never gets old. You can never explore it enough and everyone understands it very deeply. Um, and how it relates to the real housewives <laughs> is that you can have plays and television shows and dramas and movies about people who are actually under threat, actually in danger, right. um, actually living hand to mouth, trying to have enough money to pay for food or in a war zone. You can, you can have those stories, but that's a very different type of story. This type of story, the Chekhov type of story and the Real Housewives story is these people are wealthy, they're fine, but they're still confronting this existential threat of what about me, what, what about me? Mm-hmm. Those people on Real Housewives, they are in a Chekhovian breakdown. <laughs> and it's urgent and in it the moment. Urgent. Mm-hmm. So urgent. They're also drinking a lot. <laughs> and so are the characters just like check off. They're all they're all a little drunk. It's really the, the pain that you will see flicker across their faces in reality shows, I feel like so mirrors what's happening in these plays. So so I'm fascinated by this. Well, and Chekhov, there's a little group in Portland who is obsessed with Chekhov and does, like, every couple of years, they'll do, like, a whole weekend of Chekhov plays and readings and symposia and all of that. Uh, and I went to a couple of their uh, readings this last year, Lewis and Clark, and one of the things that they talked about was how funny it is, how human, how vulnerable, how funny. And that was indeed how it came off. You have this kind of larger cast of very, you know, uh, human humans and just uh, with their yearnings and their wants and their needs and their questions uh, and it just it is lovely it's really lovely so check off you're a Chekhovian <laughs> and I would say you know it's the same list of things that the Real Housewives are experiencing so I suggest that you tune in now I'll have an angle on it <laughs> yeah, you gotta have an angle to watch it well I have a question for you about a quote in your play Sure. Which is, um, I, which really struck me and stuck out to me, I think, because I was thinking of like, am I an actor? Am I a director? What am I? You know, I was having that conversation in my own mind about myself. Um, I try to teach my students that we're not any of those things, that we're artists who do different mm-hmm. things and can mm-hmm. choose to practice art in different ways. So I got to learn that for myself. <laughs> but um, you wrote, I write plays and make actors say the words for me. <laughs> and I thought... Oh, like, of course, that's what writers are doing. But from an actor perspective, you know, it's just such an interesting idea that that idea that like, I'm going to have, I'm always thinking of that idea from the actor side, mm-hmm. but to hear it from the playwright side of what does that mean to you? Or can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the quote is from the gun show. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a joke, uh, but it's also true, which uh, is that it's talking about why there is someone telling my story on my behalf within the particular, uh, this particular play, The Gun Show. And it's because that's what I do is, you know, I, I, I write and I make actors say the words for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a funny way of putting it. Yeah. but. It is a job I have found and that I love 
to write plays and have both the solitary experience of communing with my characters and listening to what they have to say to me and hearing dialogue in my head and having a whole community <laughs> with multiple channels actually always happening inside me is a wonderful thing. But I don't think a person can become a playwright without absolutely loving that other half of our lives, which is the part in which we get to work with actors, directors, designers in bringing that to life. And there is something that is interactive about plays and built for community in a way that poetry and fiction isn't, not in the same way. I mean, those are solitary most of the time in their reception by the audience, whereas plays are meant to be built in community by actors and directors and designers and stage managers and then experienced by an audience. And I think about people coming together around a campfire in the most like, like original ways of when stories were first shared in the darkness and it's one person sitting across from another person telling them a story. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's exactly what I do. That's mm -hmm. exactly what I feel in my heart like I'm doing is I'm sitting across from someone telling them this, this story and it has to be exciting and it has to be true and it has to be real and it has to be honest in that honest way that things that are spoken in the darkness mm. have to be and joyful and having all of the, all of the fullness of a story well told. And I think a lot about structure and how to write plays and all of that, but that's all it comes down to in the end is sitting across and telling a story. And my conduit happens to be <laughs> the actor because I'm not an actor. I, I don't mind talking to people, but your art is different than my art. And yeah. um, I find such surprise sometimes in hearing the words that I've written spoken to me by an actor. Uh, it shouldn't be surprising to me because I wrote them, but it is surprising to me because I'm oftentimes trying to tell myself <laughs> something or figure something oh. out when I'm writing. And so, you know, the, so the words go down onto the page and I'm wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. And when they come back to me, it's shocking sometimes i'll watch my own plays quite a few times i admit <laughs> and it's not vanity at all it's curiosity it's like what what was i trying to say did i get anywhere where have we gotten with this together um so <laughs> that's really interesting that's really interesting the idea of hearing them back as if you know and that, it, that they're for you that you're trying to tell yourself something you know, and from the actor side, of course, it's like the playwright is trying to tell me something. <laughs> and the playwright wants me to tell the audience something, and I can't say, I must deliver this line in a way that clarifies what the playwright wants me to be telling the audience, you know. <laughs> it's so funny. 
but then maybe the playwright doesn't know what they want to be telling. That's a really interesting perspective. You know, how to leave room for truth to be larger than we can put our finger on is, I think, part of our jobs. Is I, I, If I had the, the stuff that I have answers for, I don't need to write plays about. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that would be an essay. <laughs> I would tell right. you what I think. A right. play is the big questions that I have about the human heart and the universe. Mm-hmm. And we can take stabs at answers and perhaps our whole lives are stabbing at answers and trying to figure out how should I be in the world? What is the right way to be in the world? What do I need in the world or want from the world? Um, What is the world about? (laughs) All of these things. But none of those things have simple or graspable answers. So... Michael Shirtliff, who is a uh, acting, he wrote a book called Audition for Actors, and it's really not about auditioning, it's really about acting. It's a sort of a 12, 12 guideposts of the 12 things you must decide and choose to do and figure out before you act your scene or whatever. And uh, the guideposts are very clear, you know, you've got to figure out where you are, let's imagine the room, etc. And then the 12th guidepost is mystery and secret. And basically, it's very similar to what you just said, which is take everything that you know, you've got everything that you know about the scene. Now take what you don't know about the scene and put that into. And it's the most bewildering concept of what, I, how do I put it in if I don't know what it is? And But it's something that's really important to grapple with, which I think is in line with what you're saying, that you're not writing a play about what you already have decided about and know everything about. Absolutely. I've um, I come back to... Uh, some play there there are certain playwrights who speak to me in in ways that remain that I hold on to I am like you I love plays and I love a diversity of plays and voices and styles and so that's hard for me to put but I can definitely say that people like Edward Albee whose work consistently mystifies and excites me when I read it. And there's big secret things inside them that are, you know, a delicate balance. What is that play about? I remember reading it the first time and being like, this feels so frightening, but I don't know why. And I'm not sure that I know what's happening, but I feel emotions and what's happening to me in this. And in very different ways, I also come back frequently to the work of Lanford Wilson Mm -hmm. and Sam Shepard. So those, those three fellas just really, there's something about their work that um, has a lot of room for me as a human to explore with those characters, what it means to be human. Mm. (laughs) Plus the language is so great. I just was in New York a few weeks ago and I saw Burn This, which isn't even my favorite Lanford Wilson play, uh, 5th of July. It's my favorite Lanford Wilson play. Uh, But Burn This, I was like listening to that dialogue and just watching those vulnerable people crashing into each other. And it's like, oh, I love the theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, um, I think we should, we're supposed to talk about play for keeps a little. I guess I shouldn't Let's, say that. They'll edit that part out. Yeah. <laughs> 
absolutely. Absolutely. So have you, uh, so Play for Keeps is this new idea that the Ashland New Plays Festival is exploring, right? Of putting plays, play readings, uh, making them available as podcasts. Uh, and as I understand it, it's through sort of a Netflix-like subscription process. Yeah, there's a subscription, and I think you can buy individual uh, podcasts to a specific play if you want to, but I think it's a subscription service. The idea of that, I believe, is that you are, you're not necessarily cherry-picking what you want. It's like, right. he, we're going to expose you to a, a wide variety of very, very new plays. Everything is brand new. Um, and the thing that is the coolest about it to me is that it's, it uh, provides access. We talked earlier about Ashland New Plays Festival and the special opportunity for the audience to connect with these plays and these playwrights. And of course, that is limited to a very small number of people in a very specific region. And so the idea that Behind Play for Keeps partially, I think, is that let's provide access, uh, affordable access and easy access to people outside of that geographical region, outside of that world. Absolutely. I, I was thinking about it a little bit before our conversation and the tangibility of it uh, is also appealing. When you work are writing new plays, your the work you do is ephemeral. It's always here and then gone and then here and then gone. And being published helps that a bit is that you can uh, hold on to what you've created in a way. But a reading or performance is much more the way that the play was intended to live. And you have such amazing actors in Ashland. And I know that you're gathering those for these readings and really having some fantastic people do them. So for a playwright who's wants something to hold on to of their new play and share with their folks or their friends or an artistic director in Alaska or in New York when you live on Montana or Oregon or Kansas is um, this is a way beyond the script to share what a play feels like when it's alive and podcasts are very popular right now it's a yeah. it's definitely an opening avenue for <laughs> sharing stories yeah. um, I don't know the, the one thing that I wonder about is in a time when there is so much happening in the world and so much available as entertainment, is this going to find its audience as a subscription uh, thing? And how is that? And I believe that theater has an enduring audience that it will always be relevant and important and the sense of community that I feel when I'm inside a theater breathing the air with the, those actors and other audience members for me is a big part of it so mm -hmm. what happens when you are hearing the play like a radio play but without that physical element yeah i i think you're that's a really good question and i think it's going to be we're going to see it's a it wondering yeah, yeah i i don't know because the national i was also thinking about the national theater in england who is doing those 
where, where you can go to a movie theater the basically movies, yeah. and see and and see one of their plays and I haven't gone to one yet but I want to because I want access to those stories the mm-hmm. kinds of stories that aren't certainly in the movie theater usually yeah. <laughs> with explosions and car chases right, right. and aren't uh, always available on television, even though there's exciting things of a different sort available on television as far as long-term storytelling. But the playwright is doing something different mm-hmm. uh, often. So maybe it's the plays themselves and the playwrights themselves and what they're working on that's going to be pull people in I hope so I hope so I I will say that I have read um a couple of them um as as a character and I we will rehearse a little bit but not anything like when you're rehearsing a play to put up or you know anything like that but um the act of reading it aloud in the room with the other actors Mm. still retains the magical feeling because it is a performance you you know the energy your energy shifts as an actor it's a performance you go into a different weird headspace so you're all in that headspace together and you want to give as i said earlier you want to you know give the playwright their due in terms of what am i translating here how am i how is it being spoken through me? So you're all that pressure is there and pressure in a good way that it allows you to yes. be lifted and volley the words back and forth. And so my experience in doing them is they both had a really similar to performing live. They felt like performing live in the reading process, mm-hmm. whether that removal of the audience, though, being able to share that, how that will impact it is, I guess, what remains to be to be seen. Uh, but I can I can imagine being on a road trip and saying, what am I going to listen to? <laughs> like, you know, oh, certainly not the radio. I want a story. <laughs> so. Well, and when you read plays, I, you know, I read plays all the time, but it's a struggle to get yourself in, you know, when you're reading plays, unlike a book where the narrator is speaking to you or they're speaking about themselves and you get to know their voice, you know, it's right. such a different medium that it, it is difficult, I think, to, to get into a play just through words on a page. And so there could be people for which this allows them even to just sample, which is one of these do I want to learn more about? You know, let me, let me do a sampling. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I hope so. <laughs> do. Oh, what's up next for you? Well, maybe that's our and rounding out here. <laughs> yes, exactly. The final frontier. Um, I am, as I said, I'm just sort of in the beginning phase of my second sabbatical, working on my exercises and, and trying to figure out how that's going to come together. And uh, this summer I'll be on Whidbey Island at Island Shakespeare Festival. Oh, how directing. exciting. Yeah, and I'm directing Midsummer Night's Dream, which I've always wanted to direct, to direct that play. I've worked on it as an actor many times, but... Um, uh, it's just a lovely, I don't know, I just want to play. It's beautiful, so. beautiful play. And what a pretty place to do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do it outside. It's, it should be done outside. That's, that's a great uh, opportunity. So I'll be doing that. And then, um, I don't know, many, many things. Trying to figure out what's next. You know, I have tenure. I, I My book was published. Mm-hmm. Now what am I supposed to do? So I'm right. looking for my next big challenge, I think. Lovely. Well, that sounds like a good place to be. <laughs> I think so. How about you? Oh, well, I... Coming to Ashland in June. Coming to Ashland in June. Looking forward to that. Uh, I am 
going to be having the third production of Apple Season that I'm looking forward to. That's going to be down in Los Angeles in July. So I'm already talking to them about like when to go down to join them for rehearsals and and be part of the process. But I also have a, another new play called How the Light Gets In that's going to have its world premiere at Boston Court Pasadena in September. And so uh, luckily both of those are in Los Angeles. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of southerly travel ah. uh, in the next few months. Uh, but that's a beautiful theater space and a wonderful group of theater artists to work with. So I'm excited to bring that uh, to life. Um, is that a Leonard Cohen reference? Absolutely. I like some Leonard Cohen. <laughs> okay, good. He's really good. He, uh, he yeah. asks questions too. <laughs> uh, and I'm working on another big play, a play called The Great Divide. And this might be, I don't know if it's going to be five and a half hours, but it's a big new political play that's centered around the occupation uh, down at the of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in eastern Oregon in 2016. Fantastic. Which was, you know, huge for all of us who live in Oregon, but it was also such a fascinating microcosm set against the macrocosm of the election and the strange place that we find ourselves in America today. And so it's about that particular event, but it's also about protest in America and who gets to. It's about what do we want America to be. Every time I look at this play, it gets bigger, so I don't know when it's going to be done, <laughs> but yeah. I'm excited to be writing it and delving into that. So so I have my uh, writing hat on this summer uh, and about oh, I don't know, 35 books beside my desk <laughs> on various aspects of, I don't know, wherever this play is trying to take me. So that's a happy place for a writer to be. Oh, fantastic. Mike, that, you do have your work cut out for you <laughs> with trying to explore the questions that you're, you're looking at in that. I'm ex really excited to hear that. Um, that. I feel like that, you know, it was a big news story for a while that uh, occupation there or, or taking over there. And then it sort of faded. And I feel like, what, but what, but what was that? I still have unanswered questions that I'm excited to explore. Yeah. What does so. it mean? It, it, and it, it, it just suggests so many different things. Truly. It's, it's, I'm very excited to be delving into this uh, because it feels like I'm delving into all of our questions about what it means to be in America today. And there are some big questions yeah. today and <laughs> generally in the last couple of years that I've been asking myself and I, I know I'm not alone. So yeah, yeah it's, that's good. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll figure it out. <laughs> that one might need a dinner. You might need people to sit down and talk, you yeah. know. <laughs> Take a little rest in the middle <laughs> before yeah, totally. we go back in. <laughs> well, it was fantastic talking to you. This has been fun. Thank you. Yes, I'm really the... glad to get to know you a little bit better. Likewise. And uh, if, uh, it sounds like I'll miss you in June because you're going to be out midsummering. I, uh, I hope we get a chance for coffee and more conversations. I hope so. Well, will you be back at the fall festival? 
I hope so. I do have uh, how the light gets in will be opening in September and running into October. But, you know, I, uh, I love it. And I dropped by this last year because my yeah. dear friends, Ian August and Stephanie Walker, were, were part of the uh, festival. And even when I don't know the playwrights, I'm so excited to meet them and to see what they're talking about. So don't count me out. Okay. Okay, good to know. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check out our subscription podcast at playforkeeps.org for a collection of plays made in Ashland, Oregon. For those of you who can make it out to Ashland, we have a special treat for you. The Gun Show by E.M. Lewis, directed by Lisa Velton-Smith, will be playing at the Bellevue Grange in Ashland, Oregon on June 14th and 15th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are available at the door and online at ashlandnewplays.org. Play for Keeps podcast is produced by Ashland New Plays Festival and Play for Keeps. This podcast was produced by Andy Herndon, art direction by Cara Quinn Lewis. Play for Keeps is directed by Jim Pagliasotti. Written content is edited by Carol Florian. Special thanks to Kyle Hayden, Jackie Apodaca, and Beth Kander. This is your host, Mary Claire Erdenast. Please visit us online at playforkeeps.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Help us spread the word. Follow, like, share, and retweet. See you next time at Play for Keeps podcast. Books are meant to be read. Plays are meant to be said. Play for Keeps.